There once was a father who had two sons. There's a famous story in the book of Luke that for centuries has been known as the parable of the prodigal son. And I think one of the interesting things about this story is it's perhaps after the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture. And what if I told you that over the course of these last centuries, we have been telling this story incorrectly? What if I told you that we have neutered and sentimentalized one of the most radical stories Jesus has ever told? You might say to me, Justin, you might need to take the next hour to unpack that. And I would say, you're probably right. So that's what we'll do. We'll take the next hour to unpack that. The reason why I say that is because typically we associate with the younger prodigal son. That's what we do, right? That's why we call it the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about a, fa- or a son who demands his share of the inheritance. He takes the inheritance. He runs off into a faraway land. He squanders all of his wealth in reckless living. And then he returns back home to a loving, benevolent father. At its core, that's the fundamental message that we share. And we love that story because, in its essence, it's pointing to our predicament, too, isn't it? Every single one of us, we can say, I can associate with that story. Like the prodigal son, I, too, have run away from God. I've hidden away in faraway places. And it was only through the grace, the radical grace of God, that I was able to come back home. And by his grace, by his goodness, by his mercy, I am bought back. I'm invited back into the family of God. I've been given a place at the banquet feast, at the table of God. It brings tears to our eyes. It's a powerful and profound message. All of it is true, and all of it is good. But it's also an incomplete story. I say that because this parable isn't just about one son. It's actually about two sons. A younger brother and an elder brother. And in this story, Jesus intends for us as listeners, us as readers, to compare and to contrast them. And if we don't do that, then we miss the radical message that Jesus intends for us to hear. We miss the point of the story. Because in this story, Jesus wants us to hunger and to thirst for something. He wants us to yearn for something. He wants us to long for something. And it is only in and through comparing these two sons do we finally hear what Jesus intends for us as listeners to know and to understand in our heart of hearts. And so what we're going to be doing over the course of the next couple of weeks as we continue our series, Running from God, we are going to be looking at the parable of the lost sons. Uh, What we've been doing over the course of the last four weeks, we have been looking at the story of Jonah for the sake of our guests, and we have been learning a fundamental message that there are two fundamental ways that we can run from God. And the first one, which perhaps seems obvious, is we can run from God through disobedience. 
We can run from God through disobedience. That makes sense. And we see it in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, that, that Jonah receives a command from God to go to the great city of Nineveh to preach against them. What does he do? He turns his back on God. He deliberately and overtly runs in the opposite direction. He says, I want nothing to do with your plan. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And he seeks to go to the farthest westerly point in the known world in order to get out of the presence of God. He says, I want no part in your plan. And we see here in that story that he is seeking to disobey the will of God. But through Jonah, Jonah chapter 3 and 4, we also learn that there's a second way that we can run from God. And it's quite scandalous at the forefront. We can run from God through obedience. Yes, we can, through obedience. The very good things we do, the way that we obey the will of God. You see, we're not interested in intimacy with God. We are interested in seeking to maneuver and to manipulate the relationship in order to get what we want. And we see that in Jonah. He gets fed up with God. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, he gets angry with him, and he says, How dare you be merciful to the Ninevites. The only reason why he is obeying God in the first place is because he intends for God to bring down judgment on the Ninevites. And when he doesn't do that, he condemns God. And so we see in this story that either through our disobedience or through our obedience, both can be used as a way to try and avoid God to try and run from him, to try and manipulate him, to try and manipulate the very relationship that we have with him. And as we explore the parable of the lost sons, we're going to see a very similar message, a very similar theme unfold. And so if you have your Bibles here with you this morning, or your smartphones, or whatever you're using, I want to encourage you to look to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15. It's about five-sixths through your Bible. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four big books. If you can find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, we're going to look at the first three verses. Here's what God says. Luke 15, starting at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Stop right there. The amazing thing about this parable, these stories of Jesus, is that as you read through it, you begin to realize just who these two brothers are. We see from the context of the story that Jesus, he's sitting around with people who are identified as tax collectors and sinners. The only specific group that has been identified as tax collectors. And they have developed a bit of a reputation during that time as uh, people who manipulate the system. Most of them are Jews. But also, most of them fall under the Roman government, so they can't be touched. But just picture in your mind for a second, if you are supposed to give 20% of your income to Canada Tax Revenue Agency, and you find out that over the course of the last couple of years, the tax collectors have been taking not 20, but 40%. And you know what they're doing, but you have no way of any recourse, no way of bringing them to court, and so you just have to bite the bullet. You just have to eat it. 
And so tax collectors have been developing this reputation where they're filling their own pockets at your expense, and no one wants anything to do with them. And Jesus, he's hanging out with these tax collectors and with these sinners. But a second group has also been identified, and and these are the religious leaders of the day, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they're all around Jesus as he begins to share this parable. And a proposed problem has been presented right in verse 2, and I put it this way in your note sheet. Jesus associates with sinners. He's associating with sinners. Now, in order for us to understand why this is so scandalous, I want us to take a little bit of time to unpack this. So there's two specific things that are identified in our text. The first thing that we see is that he eats with them. Right? Jesus eats with sinners. Why is that such a scandalous thing? Well, we have to see in the first century ancient Near East context, to eat with someone wasn't simply a token of, of just eating a meal. It was to enter into solidarity with them. As you break bread, it was a deeply spiritual exercise. A way of associating with people and building camaraderie with them. And you just didn't eat with people who were sinful, who were far from God. And here's Jesus eating with them. And the second thing that's identified is that he doesn't only eat with them, he receives them. Or the word that we see in the NIV, he welcomes them. This Greek word is used six times in the Gospel of Luke, and it's a really hard word to translate from Greek to English, but but here's what it is seeking to convey. It's not just that he's receiving them. It's not just that he's welcoming them. It's that he is eagerly and enthusiastically looking out for them. So just picture this in your mind for a second. You've seen the YouTube clips where, let's just say, a, a military man, he's been deployed overseas for over a year, Finally, the family hears that he is going to be coming back home. And they've all, they're all waiting there at the airport. And you know those doors that open and close, open and close. They're there with, welcome home, Daddy. David, welcome back. We can't wait to see you. We want to give you a hug. All these signs. Everyone's out there waiting. The door opens. Is it him? Oh, no, it's not him. Door closes again. Door opens again. There he is. Everyone goes crazy. They give him the bear hug. He falls down. They flood him with kisses and hugs. It's those videos that you watch on YouTube and, you know, your spouse catches you watching it and you say, I'm not crying, you're crying, right? <laughs> Just a beautiful... That's what Jesus is doing here. He's eagerly anticipating them. He's like a tractor beam. He's got them fixed and focused, and he's always going after them. It's not simply that they're coming to him, right? It'd be one thing if, you know, you're, you're just sitting at the table having your meal, and they come sit by you. No, Jesus is going on the offensive. He's always the one who is looking out for them. And the Pharisees are saying, we don't do that. You don't associate with sinners. You don't sit with them, and you certainly don't look out for them enthusiastically. Jesus is a very odd person indeed. You might think, for example, of the story of Zacchaeus, who also was a tax collector. We know the song, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, the Lord he wanted to see. And then Jesus comes up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from there. Why? For I'm going to your house today. Bum, bum. I'm going to your house today. I had to finish it. 
So what we learn from that story is Jesus is always the one who's initiating contact. He's inviting himself over. He's saying, I'm going to share a meal with you. That's not what a rabbi would do. That's not what religious leaders do. Jesus is breaking all the rules. But why is this so offensive? Why is this something that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are so offended by? One of the things we have to see here is that entering into solidarity with someone during that first century ancient Near East context was always seen as a token of acceptance. I put it this way in your note sheet. By association, Jesus is making himself, quote-unquote, unclean. He's making himself unclean. That's the great offense here. Perhaps you've heard of the term guilt by association. We, we kind of understand this at a social level, but we definitely understand it on a civil level. Perhaps you've heard of these stories where some kid, he gets involved with the wrong crowd, and that crowd, they, they make a series of unwise choices, and simply by association, he gets thrown in with the group. He might be an innocent bystander when they're breaking the law, but he can be seen as someone who has aided and abetted a crime, right? Or be used as an accessory to a crime. He himself hasn't done the wrong action, but by association, he's tossed in. And in a spiritual sense, that's what's happening here. Jesus, by associating with sinners, he's casting his lot in with them, and they're saying, we don't do that. That's the great offense of Jesus by eating with them, putting his arm around them, laughing with them, crying with them in public, nevertheless. And it's within that context that we have to read the story. So in light of that information, who do you think this parable, the parable of the lost sons, is specifically pointed at? Like I said to you already, there's a couple different groups of people that are there. We have the, we have the uh, tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. We know that they're there because they're identified. We know that wherever Jesus goes, his disciples are with him. We also know that ever since Jesus started his journey to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 10, great crowds have been gathering around Jesus. But it's not until the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are identified in verse 2, with their accusation, and they say, if you look at your Bibles, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. And then we see a word in verse 3. If your Bibles are open, help me out. What's that first word in verse 3? Then. Then Jesus tells them this parable. And so we see within the context that the real intent of Jesus here is to share this message, to share this parable with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders, with the religious elites of the day. And then he starts by sharing not just one, but three parables. And we have to see on the front end that each of these parables has a very similar message. And the, the thing that, that he wants them to understand is that sitting and associating with sinners, the, the, the heart of Jesus is this. Sinners are sort of like something that was lost that Jesus wants to be found. That's the heart of God. He wants them to be found. 
And then he gives three parables. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep in the fold. One gets lost. He leaves the 99. He searches high and low, day and night, in great danger from darkness and bears. And it is not until he finds the sheep, he puts it up over his shoulders. He goes home. He invites the great community to a banquet feast. And verse 6, it says this, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. The second parable is the parable of the lost coin. And there's a woman, she has lost her coin, and does she not search high and low, day and night, until the coin is found? And when she finds it, she invites the whole community to celebrate. Verse 9, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And then the third is the parable of the lost sons. But the difference in this story from the first two parables is that there's not one act, but there's two. There's two acts in this parable. So let's just take a look at this. If your Bibles are open, look at verse 11. Verse 11. It says this, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. First act. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in reckless living. And what ensues next is after that, there is a great famine in the land, and he finds the only job he can find, and he's feeding pigs, and he desires to eat what is in the feeding trough. And then he comes to his senses, and he says, "'What am I doing?' Even, even my father's servants have more to eat. They have, they have food to spare. I'll come back, and I, I have no right to say I'm his son any longer, but maybe I could be taken on as a hired servant. Maybe I could earn my way back. Maybe I can pay him back. And he goes up to his father, and his father will have nothing of his repentance project, and he embraces him. He gives him a coat of honor. He gives him the signet ring. He kills the fattened calf, and they begin to celebrate but here's a question I want to ask you. You have to wonder, you know, with the shepherd, he goes after the sheep, right? And in the instance of the coin, the woman searches after the coin. But in the instance of the younger brother, why doesn't anyone go looking for him? Have you ever wondered that? An equally important question is this. Who was responsible to go looking for the younger brother? To answer that question, you'll have to come back next week. <laughs> but the story continues, and the father says this, verse 23, Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. And before long, we realize just who Jesus is talking about. We have to see on the front end that the younger brother in the parable of the lost sons is the tax collectors and sinners in the original context. They are the stand-ins for the people who are there. They are the lost sheep. They are the lost coin. They are the lost younger brother. Like the sheep, they have run away. Like the lost coin, they have hidden themselves away in dark places. And like the lost younger brother, they have broken the father's heart 
engaged in wild and reckless and licentious living, doing whatever they want, saying, I want no part in the will of the Father. I'm going to do my own thing. And we can look at these stories and say, yep, that's sin. But in a dramatic turn of events, we see in this instance that when the younger brother, the sinful younger brother comes home, he is found. He's invited into the banquet feast. And this is a cause for celebration. But before the story can continue, there's a second act. The story continues. And this is the issue that that I really want us to recognize on the front end as as we're going to be looking at this for the next couple of weeks. We tend to end the story right there, which is only the first half of the story, right? The, The truth is that in this third and final parable, there's actually a second act. And I mentioned to you last week that in the story of Jonah, we typically do the same thing. Right? Typically, the way we think about the story of Jonah is he receives the command from God, he runs in the opposite direction, he boards a ship, God intervenes, he gets thrown off the ship, he gets eaten by a fish, spat out after three days, then he has a change of heart, he goes to Nineveh, he preaches the word of God, they all repent, and they all rejoice the end. But that's only the first act. The whole point of the story of Jonah comes after that. And sadly, ironically, but not surprisingly, we tend to do exactly the same thing with this story. The story typically ends with us welling up our hearts with joy in knowing that the younger brother who was lost has now been found. He has been brought back home the end. But there's a second act to the story. Let's suppose for a moment that, that your, friend, your friends, they tell you, you know what, you have to go to Broadway and see Shakespearean drama Romeo and Juliet. And so you say, all right, I'm going to go. So in the first act, you hear about these two star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet, and, and they meet in the strangest of ways. And quickly they they fall in love, but they find out that there's great division between their two families, and then the curtain closes. First act is over. And you see everyone leaving. You don't know that it's an intermission. Everyone's about to go to the bathroom. They're going to get some popcorn. It's an opportunity for the theater to make more money. But you, thinking to yourself, like, it's over? You go home. And you go up to your friends and you say, that is the strangest story. I thought it ended in the weirdest of ways. And and all you guys, you, you think it's such a great story, but I thought it was rather odd. And your friends say to you, dude, there was a second act to the story, and I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I'm going to do it anyway. Some key characters die an untimely death in the second act, and some people would even say the entire point of the entire drama comes forward in the second act. You see where I'm going with this? The same thing happens in the story. And for us to cut off after the first act means we are going to miss the radical message that Jesus intends to share with his people. And so in the second act, it continues. Look at verse 25. Luke 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, 
And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him home safe and sound. And the older brother became, what's the word? Help me out. Angry. And like I like to say, circle, highlight, underline. That's right. Thank you. He became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. This is the beginning of the second act. And one of the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, who are the stand-ins for the elder brother? Who's Jesus thinking about when he begins talking about the elder brother? We have to see that the elder brother represents the religious elites, the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. Like the elder brother, they live according to the Bible. They comply with the will of the Father. They're moral. They're upright. They're good. And so there we see that, that the two sons in the parable actually represent the very people that Jesus is talking to in that moment. They're not fictitious characters. But in the case of the elder brother, the ending is not the same as the first. So let's just recap. The sheep was lost and then was found, and there was a great feast to commemorate the occasion. That's verse 6. The coin was lost, and then was found. And then there was a great feast to commemorate the occasion. That's verse 9. The younger brother was lost, and then he was found. And then what happens? There's a great feast to commemorate the occasion. That's verse 23 and 24. And then the, four, the fourth and final story, the second act of the third parable, the elder brother was... What is he? See, this is the critical question that Jesus wants us to ask. I put it this way. Is the elder brother lost? Is the elder brother lost? You see, this is the question Jesus wants the Pharisees to consider. And the most stunning part about this entire parable is the way that it ends. We see that the younger brother, he breaks his father's heart. He takes his piece of the estate. He squanders it on worldly pleasures. He comes back and he humbles himself. And then he goes into the great banquet feast and he is saved. But in the second act, with the elder brother, he stays on the outside of the banquet feast, and he is lost, as far as we know. As far as we know. And Jesus' original listeners know exactly the point that Jesus is seeking to make. And it is the complete reversal of everything that they have ever learned. You can almost hear them gasp. The immoral sinner is saved, and the man of moral rectitude is lost. But why is he lost? Why is he outside the banquet feast? In order to try and answer that question, I want us to return back to the, gospel, to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. And here's what we're going to see. Jonah has just finished preaching a message to the Ninevites, his five-word word sermon, and they all repent. 
But God, his heart is filled with compassion, and here's what happens. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented, and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Verse 1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became, what's the word? Help me out. Angry. Okay, now let's turn to, back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15, verse 28. It says this. The older brother, after hearing that the younger brother has come home, the father has killed the fattened calf, he's in the banquet feast, the older brother became, what's the word? Angry. Interesting. Jonah and the elder brother have exactly the same response to the mercy and the compassion of our Heavenly Father. Why is that the case? Why is it that both of them have become angry? In order to answer that question, I want to share one more uh, story with you, a parable of Jesus called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And the story goes like this. There's the master of the vineyard, and at the beginning of the day, he, reach out, he reaches out to servants, and he says, I will give you a day's wages for a day's work. And so they all get together, and they go out into the field, and they start working. Three hours later, the master hires more people, and they go out into the field. Three hours after that, he hires more people, they go out into the field. Three hours later, he does exactly the same thing. They go out into the field. And one more time, two hours later, with one hour left in the day, he hires one final group of people and they go out into the field. One hour of work in the cool of the day. And after that hour was done, he brings all his servants out and he gives each of them one day's wages. And guess what happens the people who started at the beginning of the day, they become, do you know what the word is? Angry. <laughs> Imagine that. They're angry. Why? Why are they outraged? Why is it that Jonah is outraged and angry at the compassion of God? Why is it that the elder brother is angry at the compassion of the father? Why is it that the servants at the beginning of the day who had to work 12 hours rather than one hour are angry at the master? We begin to see that each and every one of them have exactly the same heart. And the elder brother explains this heart in Luke 15, verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. And never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You see, really what's at stake for the elder brother is this. This claim. He says, I want you to measure me over and against my younger brother. What's the heart of Jonah? I want you to measure me over and against the disobedience of the Ninevites. What's the heart of the workers in the vineyard? I want you to measure me over and against those who've only been working for an hour when I've been slaving for you for 12. You might call it a sense of misguided fairness. Misguided justice. 
the great appeal of the heart of the elder brother is this. I want you to measure me. And God says, are you sure? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Okay. Romans. Chapter 3. Verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You want to be measured? That's the measurement. That's the measurement. You see, the heart of Jonah and the heart of the elder brother and the heart of the workers in the vineyard, the desperate desire that they have is they say, I want you to measure me. And the heart of God is, I don't want to measure you because if I measure you, then you're going to fall short. And that's going to mean eternal separation from you. Do not ask me to measure you. Don't do it. Don't do it. They still don't understand the heart of God. And so Jesus says, the real problem is this. This is the way I put it in your note sheet. The elder brother is seeking to be his own savior. He wants to be his own savior. All of his morality, all of his obedience, all of his goodness has one goal in mind. He isn't obedient to the will of God to have the heart of God. Because he loves God. Because he rejoices in God. He wants to be obedient to God for the love of himself. Because he wants to earn his keep. He wants to prove his way. He wants to say, I am the reason why I deserve the grace of God. And now that we understand story and, and who Jesus is talking to, I think we can rest assured that the original listeners were not melted into a puddle of tears when they heard this story. I think the more likely scenario is that they would go out from there and they would start plotting to kill him. How can we get rid of this guy? And of course, that's exactly what they do. And so we need to see that Jesus' purpose, it's not simply to, to warm our hearts or to fill our eyes with tears. The intent of Jesus here is to shatter our categories and for us to recognize that all people are spiritually lost aside from the intervention of the Father. And we see in the story, the Father is the one who brings the younger brother into the banquet feast. And the Father is also the one who leaves the banquet feast to bring the elder brother in, but he refuses to go in. Why? On the basis of his moral pedigree. That's why he refuses to go in. Not because he's made a mistake. Not because he himself is sinful, but because he thinks I deserve to be in, he deserves to be out. He wants to be 
measured. And so here is the point of Jesus. He says, you can escape God just as much through morality and religion as you can escape God through immorality and irreligion. You can escape God just as much by being very, very good as you can escape God by being very, very bad. Both are equal ways that we can run from God. And in fact, this is what it really comes down to. Jesus wants us to see that there are only two ways to be saved. Yep, not one, two. There's only two ways that we can be saved. The first way is through the perfection of Jesus. And the second way is through the perfection of yourself. And Jesus recognizes this, the heart of God is this, no one is righteous. If you want to be measured, you will come up wanting. And really what this comes down to is humility. And so in a nutshell, this is what Jesus is communicating to the original listeners, both the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He wants them to see this. It's harder to receive grace when you feel like you don't need it. It's harder to receive grace when you feel like you don't 